I'm Jody Vance in for Jill this week. On this Tuesday, we will run the gamut for you from how we might solve the dangerous problem of the ever-growing encampment in Strathcona to Trump being schooled in an Axios interview that has totally gone viral. If you missed that this long weekend, you'll want to stay tuned. Also, we're going to get to how back to school just significantly changed in Alberta with the announcement of mandatory masks in that province. Richard Zussman will join us on that file. And we'll get the latest on the BC wildfires as the hot weather and long weekend have combined for a spike on that front. But up first, there is a really great column that I urge you to read in the Vancouver Sun that speaks to the impact of big name food delivery services on BC restaurants. It's hitting the bottom line really, really hard. Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, is quoted in that column and now joins us on the line to talk this through and perhaps, as we like to do, search for solutions. Hi, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Jody. Always something with restaurants, huh? I know, right? But I mean, even before a pandemic, they were razor thin margins for profit in the restaurant industry and third party delivery services are eating up a chunk of that now. Um, Stats Canada put the before tax um, earnings of a restaurant at about 4%. So it's very slim and it was getting really slim before the pandemic. Just a whole bunch of things were hitting us. Your property taxes and labor rates are going up and then this but um, during that, um, before, I'd like to call it the old sort of economy, takeout and delivery for a restaurant was, um, was in, in most cases, was just an add-on. It wasn't something that they focused on. It was a growing part of the business. It was, um, you know, maybe representing 10% of the sales. And in the mix of things, a lot of restaurants just saw it as a marketing cost. So they really didn't focus on the absolute cost of what it was costing to use companies like Skip the Dishes and Uber Eats and DoorDash. And yeah. when we got into, you know, where takeout delivery became so important, in fact, it was the only thing we could do for, you know, almost three, three months, they looked at the costs and the cost became ridiculous. So anywhere from 25 to 30% commission. So for your listeners, you've got a $10 burger and the restaurant's going to pay $3 um, before $3 will be charged as commission for the delivery company. And then they'll charge a delivery fee to the consumer. So um, they're making it both ends. The, the, the sad thing is that no one's winning here. The consumers are paying extra. The restaurants aren't making any money. And if you look at you know Uber and Skip the Dishes, financially, they're in a mess. They're not making any money in North America whatsoever. So something has to break. The, this model is not going to be long term. So how does that work? That when when so much money is being spent at both ends from the restaurant and the consumer, and then the business model in in between is not turning a profit. Where's all the money going? Well, it's um, largely going to you know, what what the third party delivery companies are saying is to provide their marketing platform and their services. And mm. so they provide the order platform. They provide marketing services on those platforms. Then they also provide the delivery. So. I mean, from a concept point of view, it makes a lot of sense because you can really expand your trading area of your restaurant. And in fact, that's what a lot of people did, but they didn't really worry too much. They said, well, you know, it's maybe becoming 20% of my sales, but it's worth right. it because people are sampling my, you know, my great pasta. But now um, where that money is going right now is basically to the delivery companies. Um, I mean, there isn't 30 points in a restaurant to pay. So now we're at the crossroads of, you know, we've got a consumer who loves uh, the takeout and, and, um, and delivery. 
And now I will. There's a there is a difference here. If it's if it's if it's delivery, pardon me, if it's takeout, um, that comes at a, a much less cost for the restaurant. So the first thing that your listeners could do to support a restaurant is go pick up the food themselves. They avoid um, the, the commissions on that are around 15%. So that really helps the restaurant, but you don't have the convenience of delivery. So we've looked at, um, you know, how to do this, because uh, I think long-term um, it's pretty clear that uh, takeout and delivery is going to be really important. We're going to be in this pandemic for a while, and I think we'll, we've forever changed our habits. We'd love to, you know, order a special food at home. I know you do. So we've got to find a model. In BC, um, my goal is to find a model, find some businesses in British Columbia that can provide a British Columbia solution to support small business, and um, and it also helps the consumer because it'll get the cost down to the consumer. Okay, before we unpack what the next step should be, I think it's worth sort of just shining a light on the fact that many of us who are rookies at the Uber Eats or the Skip the Dishes or what have you, people that don't use that service all the time, might think on the one-off or, you know, if the handful of times that I'm going to do uh, delivery, what's the harm? Because I'm going to pay as the end user, I'm paying for the service. It is sort of an aha moment for many to realize when they're saying, I'm going to use Uber Eats and I'm going to order in at my local restaurant because I really want this small business to survive. What they don't understand is it's costing that restaurant for you to have the convenience of that service, even though you're paying at the other end of it. I think for many of us, we just thought, oh, this is all on us to pay the user fee, right? So this is, this is is the thing. Yeah. And there is, uh, there are restaurants that uh, in fairness to, you know, uh, and and being uh, perfectly open, they have increased their prices to um, the food that they offer for uh, delivery because they've had right. to. Had to. And, yeah. Well, there's not thirty percent to to give there. They well, would have been right. going in the red on every dish. That's right. But I mean, yeah. the best thing that, that a, a person can do is phone the restaurant directly and see if they right. deliver. Um, they can go to the restaurant's website to see if there's a facility. And in the last case, I mean, we, listen, we don't want to lose the sale if. If it comes down to Uber Eats and or skip the dishes, let's we'll take that every day. But yeah. um, you know Can we don't we want do to lose better? that momentum. That's right. Until we do right. it better, exactly. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, continuing our chat with Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. And Ian, before the break, we were talking about possible solutions to the cost to small restaurants. I mean, the McDonald's of the world are going to be fine paying a little bit here and there for people who are going to uh, be ordering for delivery. And yet the smaller business, the restaurateur that you're really looking at and thinking, will you survive this if we don't spend and spend often with you? Um, how can we how can we find a way or create a service that doesn't cost 30 cents on the dollar? Like the big names do. Yeah, so we're talking to a, a company that's established in Victoria, and um, we're looking at the fall, and we're looking at some parameters that would bring the cost to the restaurant at around 15%. And, and by, just, by the way, turn back up here for a second. Uh, this is a concern not just in British Columbia. This is a concern all the United States. And in fact, Los Angeles, Seattle, New York City, um, they've all brought in a legislative cap of 15% uh, by government to say, you know what, you can't charge anymore. In fact, um, one city is going is going to cap it at 10% because the audience is captive. And mm. so they realize that restaurants don't have much of an alternative. 
and they're not going to have much of an alternative uh, as we look into the future. So what we're looking at is a is a um, uh, is a company in British Columbia that would provide the order and delivery, and the overall cost would be about fifteen percent. And the reason they can do that is they're looking at doing a flat fee subscription-based model. It might be for a restaurant 100 bucks a month, something like that. And then there'd be a, a flat uh, delivery fee. When you look at deliveries around restaurants, their trading area is about two or three kilometers. So it's not like, you know, we're taking food from, I don't know, Kitsilano moving to North Vancouver. They tend to be in their trading areas. And so I believe we can pull this off. The premier is really interested in a VC solution. And the challenge we're going to have is how do we market uh, against Skip the Dishes and Uber Eats, who, by the way, I actually called them uh, in the middle of, the, this, of this crisis that we're in and asked them politely if they wouldn't mind bringing down uh, their commissions. And it was a humming and hawing, and we had to make money. So I got nowhere with them. And I sort of thought, you know, Jody, as we spent so much time doing rideshare, I sort of thought I might have had something in the bank with them to sort of help here. But no, there wasn't. Hmm. And so um, that's so, you know, competition will breed more efficiency. So we're pretty excited about this. The city of Vancouver uh, talked to the mayor. Uh, he's actually interested in maybe doing something around 15%, um, whether they can or not. We looked with the provincial government. They can't find any way to do it from a regulation point of view, but they did try. So I think the best thing to do is try to find a VC solution, and we go out and we market it. And, you know, if you want to order, you know, a BC food for BC restaurant, you go to, you know, bcrestaurantfood.com or whatever it is. And we'll promote that and we'll get behind that. And that um, potentially could be a, a really big solution for uh, the future of our industry. This gives all kinds of sort of food for thought, pardon the pun. But when you said, you know, BC food delivery service and just before you said dot com, I thought, why not dot gov? Why not if the premier's yeah. on side and the mayor's on side and we can get and if 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 it is an employment uptick for those you know providing a, a job opportunity that's got some yeah. job security for a, a younger set who perhaps are like you know what i want flexible hours i want to be able to do this and 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 not have to a already own a car b figure out icbc da, da, da. like the government can find ways of creating uh, a service like this if we're going to be doing this long term i mean it could check a lot of boxes and w- as well as work with the app developers to to create the platform right I mean, oh, no, solution-based totally. you know thinking, right? Last, last time you did this, so we talked about patios, and look what happened. We have patios all across British Columbia because we started a movement. So you're right, because um, there's 200,000 people that are employed in the industry, and I think there's probably only maybe half that are working right now. And of yeah. that uh, 200,000, uh, there's a lot of people between the ages of 15 and 24 and a lot of women between that that are not working right now. So when we brought in... With the government, uh, the delivery of alcohol when you order your food, one of the things the premier's office said, and I sort of went, oh, come on, let's not make it complicated. But he said, you know, let's make it so that um, there is an attraction here for restaurant workers to perhaps become delivery drivers. And that's exactly, he was, you know, and that's exactly in some cases what's happened here. So, yeah, I think you're right. .gov, BC solution, big big picture. I think we could do something. And let's get the the kids and teens and youth the the people who can pack these orders and then have a role in doing and learning worksafe bc no touch or like the super safe way to deliver you can count on it when it's you know rooted in a, a widespread monitored sort of 
Bonnie Henry approved way that that this yeah, could really engage an entire swath of our community that are just absolutely again pun starved for an opportunity like this with healthcare with security with paid time off with you know the understanding of if you're sick you're staying home you know all of those pieces that are that are missing from so many jobs and inspo to perhaps wean yourself off the serb before it is wrapped up in what a month and a half no you're totally right i mean when you know it used to be you work at the kegger white spot that's where you cut your teeth in, in hospitality now it might be you know you work for um you know bcfooddelivery.gov yeah. and got the same kind of hospitality experience and different sort of way of doing it but there is a big solution like and there's a lot of people that should that should be and need to be working and uh, and I think this is this is a, so we're going to move really quick on this and um, because a you know from the from the overall I mean the premier gets this it's in, it's critical that we get restaurants running as best as we can because they provide such an employment opportunity for such a desirable cohort of uh, of people that you know like we just said aren't working right now and frankly it's fun. As somebody who had oh, yeah. spent a great deal of my time in hospitality, uh, you know, and, and it is rewarding work. And the the camaraderie of working in food services is really like nothing else. It is, uh, you know, everybody pulling in the same direction to get the best food fast to the consumer. Uh, certainly yeah. something that sparks interest for many. And you don't you don't need any real incredibly specific skills to start. You can just get in there and learn, which is is big too. So I want to go back to the the companies that you've been talking to in terms of the app platform. Are local BC based uh, interest there? Total interest, local BC based. Uh, one company uh, has experience. They're being looked at uh, in other parts of the country. I think they're doing some stuff in Ontario. So it's not like a complete startup. We would have some um, some feet in the ground to move quite quickly. Um, we'd like to sort of be doing this by October or November and uh, get mm-hmm. this thing moving because um, it's just so, it, it's just the economics are so important. And I think, you know, when, when there's economic pressure in, this, in an industry right now on this kind of thing, when we find a solution, uh, it's like the vaccination, right? Everybody's going to yeah. jump on this. They're going to go, what? If you can drive me 15% and get my sales and I can be all about British Columbia and branding, I'm in. And I know that, you know, the 15,000 restaurants are, whatever we end up uh, when this is all over, um, get behind and market this. I think we can do a heck of a job. It's exciting. Well, the, the people who are delivering things to your front door on a global scale are the wealthiest on the planet. So if we can find a way to harness yeah. some of that and return it no. to the hardworking citizens of British Columbia, get the employment numbers up. And this could, this could dovetail into retail. This could go in all kinds of directions, Ian. Well, it is because the... the um, the delivery mentality, uh, we're, we're, we're caught in that, right? That's what we yeah. learned in the last four months, and that's not going to go away. No, that's the future. Always good to talk things through with you. I always feel inspired when we when we chew on stuff. I have to you remind always... myself we're talking on the radio. <laughs> I know. I was saying to Kathy, um, I have an, an interview with Jody. So it's not really an interview. It's a discussion. And we and I really enjoy these as well, Jody. I, I always appreciate you shining a light in our industry. Great, great to debrief with you as always. You be well and say hello to Kathy for us. And uh, keep it's me posted. It's your birthday. Uh, I will. <laughs> oh, happy birthday, Kathy. Happy Tostin birthday. Said. We go to White Spot. Okay. 
Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week. And I got an email on our subject matter of using Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes, or would you pivot to a BC service if you knew that the restaurateur would be saving money uh, on the user fees? And I got a note from Gail. She says, I'm a pickup. My takeout. I'm not in support of third-party delivery. They collect at both ends, which is just rude. Thank you for listening, Gail. Let's go to the phones now. Nicholas in Abbotsford. Welcome to the show. Your thoughts, Nicholas. Yeah, hi. Um, You know, I I have a brewery and a restaurant in Abbotsford, and uh, COVID was a very busy time for us. We were doing upwards of 120 to 150 cheeseburgers a day, and uh, beer out the window, uh, you know, it, it was good, and the pickup was great, and we, you know, we started considering maybe Uber Eats or one of these food delivery services. I just couldn't believe how much they want from you and how much they take from our already slim bottom line. You know, the other companies that kind of came out and even proposed something to us, they still had such high margins. So, I mean, we're in huge support of if there's a local delivery system, if it can be passed on to the end user. But for the most part, we're still just doing pickup and uh, and we have safe dine-in now as well. But, I mean, it's nothing. It's half the amount as it used to be. Okay, I need to know where your brewery is. What's your what, well, what's the name of your place? My business is called Loudmouth Brewing Company, and we're in Abbotsford on Mount Lehman. Nice. I like your style. Thanks for calling in and sharing your story. I really do appreciate that, Nicholas and Abbotsford. Let's go to Greg in Port Coquitlam. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hi. Um, Hi. When, uh, when I was younger, it was about 1920, I was a pizza delivery driver for, you know, any number of them, Pizza Hut, Papa John's, all of them. And yeah. while it, it is a viable option to be able to do, you have, there's two things you have to be really careful of. One is the range of, from your restaurant that you're asking a driver to go to and then come back to the restaurant because you can burn more in fuel than what you can make off of your tips or anything that comes off of what's known as a delivery fee. Um, The other thing you have to be very careful of is because of the rising cost in gas, it goes up and down. When I did this, it was like gas was 89 cents or 90 cents a liter. Now we're at a buck 20, buck 30. It can go higher. So that number based, you usually got like $3 per delivery. That was yours, but that was to cover the fuel. Anything mm. after that was what you got to keep for yourself. So restaurants Did you not get paid by the terrible. hour? Sorry, Greg, no, did you not no, get no, paid no, an no, hourly no. rate? Oh. No. See, no, back in no, the day, no, no. I'm dating myself here, but back in my day, back, back kids in my day, it was you got a salary plus tips. It was kind of like being a server, except for you served via your car. I thank you for that call. We have tracked down Jim Romer, the chef owner of Romer's Burgers, multiple locations where we got Port Moody, we got yeah. the River District, we got Kitsilano. Um, Jim, I'm sorry, only I would call a chef mid-lunch rush and ask him to stop for a second and talk to me. <laughs> Um, but thank you for being with us. Before we get to my my pertinent question, I want to replay one thing that I know you'll recognize. Uh, Tim, hit it. Take roamers in Vancouver and Port Moody. They used the wage subsidy to rehire over 150 employees and reopen their three neighborhood restaurants. Our Prime Minister needs very little introduction here. Jim, when you saw that happening live, did you feel the pride that that so many of us here in British Columbia feel for you? Because you have really protected your employees so much through this pandemic. Yeah, well, yeah, pride is uh, uh, definitely underlined and bold, that statement. I mean, I think, uh, you know, um, to have a, a, our little roamers uh, be... Um, 
um, called called out over the the nation and um, you know we're we're just like every other restaurant working real hard but certainly you know having that was pretty special moment and uh, I still feel it and you know um, I think a lot of people kind of go boy that's a pretty great thing to have and you know have him uh, you know um, he's a BC boy too but uh, he obviously knows a great burger too. Yeah, he does indeed. <laughs> and I wanted to talk to you about the topic of conversation. I was chatting with Ian Tostenson off the top of the show about the costs associated with these delivery apps, uh, Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes, etc., and the cost to you as a, a as a local, as a BC business owner who is trying to make ends meet on that razor thin margin. How much would it mean to you uh, financially and, and give you the ability to continue forward long term if you didn't have that 30 cents on the dollar going to those delivery services? Well, if we didn't have that, that would be uh, amazing. But everybody's got to make their money somewhere. Um, I think the, the most important part, too, is it's not only that we, we pay for the, you know, that, that 25, 30 percent on a razor thin margin going into winter uh, where, you know, a, a large percentage of our business will probably move to because we don't have the patios but also there's all the packaging so there's yeah. other things that are associated with the cost on the restaurant side so you know when you talk about razor thin margins um it's not only that delivery fee but it's everything else it's like the bags it's like the little ramekins it's the to-go boxes and all which is you know fairly expensive so when Ian was saying, you know what, get in touch with the restaurants and call the restaurants and ask them, is that something that would be uh, helpful to you in terms of those who want to make sure that, that their favorite Romer's location uh, continues to be able to do business throughout, as you said, the leaner winter months? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, call the restaurants or come down and pick up. That always helps, right? And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, I think that would... You know, that's the biggest difference. If someone comes down and picks up and uh, that makes the world of, of difference, actually. So, um, yeah, that'd be great if people would call and order their favorite burger and, you know, um, come down, pick it up, say hi. And, you know, obviously we're we have all our protocols in, in place for the distancing and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's an exploration in uh, in cleanliness going to a Romer's. I've I've attended in Kitsilano <laughs> and been incredibly impressed. And for me, it's a man's man. We enjoy the man's man burger. Thank you very mm-hmm. much for your time, Chef. I know you got to get back to work. You bet. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Okay, so let's pick up. Let's let's call our favorite restaurants and let's pick up for takeout and help immensely. Going back to the phone lines, hanging out and waiting for me. Thank you for that, Ken in Kelowna. Welcome to the show. Hey, long-time listener. Thanks for taking my call. Glad to have you. You know what? I got to tell you, I'm in Kelowna, not this far. So, I mean, you know, going to pick it up is never really a challenge time-wise. You get home and it's still hot. But when I I, I was going to call Skip the Dishes once, and my friend actually uh, made a post, uh, and I saw it, and I was like, no way. He told me about the 30% that these guys charge, plus they charge the, the u- end user on the other end for the fee as well. And I, I'm sitting there going, okay, well, I had a restaurant. I know the margins are razor thin. And in some cases, depending on the items, they're losing money. So I, I won't do it. And once I've explained to my friends, like when COVID started, a lot of my friends were, well, why don't we just come over? We'll sit, do social distance on the yard. We'll order, skip the dishes and have a picnic. I'm like, okay, that's great. I love what you're thinking, but I'm going to stay sober and I'll go pick it up. Right. And because yeah. I, I just think it's ludicrous that they're charging that much percentage and charging on the other end for the, for the driver. Now, I was a pizza delivery driver 
Trocadero's, I think it was, on on uh, Nanaimo Broadway area, uh, back when I was well, we high, a lot younger than I am now. And we were we were like you. We were paid an hourly wage. We worked in yeah. the restaurant, cleaning this and that, and we got tips. That's how it was done. And I know a lot of restaurants here are doing something similar now if they can, but it's far hard for them to afford the advertising dollars being hit the way they are to get people to even know that they will do a delivery. It's worth phoning. It's worth asking. And honestly, I just don't encourage anybody to do skip the dishes or Uber uh, for for food delivery. It's just it's outrageously expensive for for the uh, the restaurant to use. Yeah, I think um, the impact has been pretty significant. Um, I think when the campers moved in, um, we were we were quite welcoming, as most people in Strathcona are, um, and we felt that we uh, wanted to really see how it would go. Um, uh, unfortunately, over the last six weeks, we've seen a real um, impact on our community in, in quite negative ways. We've seen um, a a lot of needles everywhere. We've had a lot of criminal incidents happen. Um, we've had incidents with children. Um, oh. And uh, we're, we're really asking our elected leaders to step up and help us with this situation um, because it's becoming, it's getting worse and worse and we need some action now. That is Kate Lewis, Vice President of the Strathcona Residents Association on the Mike Smith Show just a little bit earlier. Things untenable. 400 tents and growing at Strathcona Park. Uh, to bring in his knowledge on this subject matter and maybe unpack where we go from here. How should this be managed? How is it being mismanaged and what can be done about it? Former Vancouver City Councillor and President and CEO of Curve Communications, uh, George Affleck, joins us on the line. Hi, George. Hey, Jordy. I feel the stress in Kate Lewis's voice. Yeah, we've, we've had this playbook before when we had the problem over uh, just a few blocks away from there where the neighbors were, were also, uh, you know, at Oppenheimer Park were feeling the same way after a certain period of time. Uh, this this is, feels like deja vu, uh, and I think we know the playbook. We know what's going to happen next. There's going to be violence. There's going to be problems. There's going to be a whole bunch of police issues. Uh, you know, what does this, the park board and the city need to know uh, than what to do next, which is clear to me. Yeah, to take action. But we've heard from mm-hmm. the park board whose jurisdiction this is to care for the park. Not the homelessness piece, but the actual caring right. for the park is falls to the park board. Yeah. Is there any way to intervene on that? Because it seems what we saw at Oppenheimer Park and then making a motion that passed by the Green Coat majority uh, to allow camping in all parks in Vancouver uh, between, you know, the hours of 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. It's it's what what can be done when when Kate well, Lewis says I need our elected officials to step up. Who's she talking to? Well, we clearly we know that the park board is uh, the majority, uh, barring John uh, Cooper and, and Trisha Parker, who are uh, w- willing to move on, on this. Uh, the rest of the, of the park board are unwilling to do anything, and they're they're taking this on as a housing issue, which is not a park board issue. Uh, the p- city of Vancouver, they, the the judge in a previous decision said clearly regarding Oppenheimer that there was no need for an injunction again in any of these parks. You can simply follow the regulations and the laws that exist in your city. So in that respect, in my mind, the city council of Vancouver through the Vancouver city police can make decisions and start acting on especially and specifically the criminal behavior 
that is going on not only in the park but in the neighborhood. And the unwillingness of this council uh, in Vancouver and, of course, the park board uh, to, to move on any of those issues is very, very concerning. And we're seeing a growing problem, as we heard from Kate, that this is, this is out of control and there doesn't seem to be any willingness uh, from the council or park board to deal with what is for the, a big portion of criminal behavior in the park. And unlike Oppenheimer Park, George, with Strathcona, it has very much fallen on the doorstep of some elected officials. They're seeing it firsthand. Yeah, well, you, you, we also, if you haven't seen the video of Pete Fry, Councillor Pete Fry, pushing the dude down the street saying, get out of my neighborhood, get the hell out of here, and, and dropping a couple of F-bombs there, uh, literally being a tough guy on his street where he lives to a person who likely is living in, Auburn, in, or in uh, Strathcona Park. But that same personality that we saw with Pete Fry on the street in his neighborhood by his house, we're not seeing as an elected official. He's not acting like the tough guy on council. He's not making the tough decision. Frankly, nobody on this council is willing to make the tough decisions that I've seen. There's a willingness and acceptance that this is the way we now have to live our lives in Vancouver with homeless camps all over the city, uh, having tents in parks across the city. This is, uh, sadly, the new normal in Vancouver. Uh, which I think is unacceptable to the majority of people in this city. I would agree with you. And and certainly the feedback we get from uh, so many here on CKNW. And you know what, George? Let's open the phones on this in the next segment. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Or star 9898 is toll-free on your cell. So star 9898. Uh, and, and chime in on this. Maybe you're on the other side, and I'm just not hearing it. Maybe there are people who are actually like, no, let people camp wherever they want to uh, in the city of Vancouver. But 400 tents in a park where they have now identified criminal activity, uh, overt and open drug use in, in, in such a dangerous scenario um, even that the the now fa- infamous or famous um, theft of that teddy bear that had the the wo- woman's mother's voice yeah. uh, recorded inside, the, uh, allegedly that teddy bear was found at Strathcona Park. Yeah, and I think the police have made it clear, and I've stated this, that this is not less a housing issue and more of a crime and healthcare issue. Uh, so, healthcare being a provincial issue, and also housing being a provincial issue. Uh, but crime is an issue that the Vancouver police are, are in charge of through the city of Vancouver's council uh, with the mayor as the chair of the police board. There is a way for us to deal with this. Housing is one issue, absolutely an important issue. We all know we have a challenge with housing. But what's going on, on at, at Strathcona and previously at Oppenheimer is a health care crisis and a criminal crisis. And, and I think that we need to deal with those two issues first and foremost uh, and through the province and through the VPD uh, before we try to solve the massive issue of housing. We can't, as a city, solve the housing issue. And, in fact, this is the second time, twice at Oppenheimer Park, where we found housing for everybody, barring a few, uh, mm-hmm. got the park cleared out, uh, and then uh, the park board sat back and let it happen again, uh, and now they're letting it happen again. How many times does this have to happen to make it clear that there's something else going on? This is part protest part criminal behavior, part mental health issues. We need to deal with those things. We can't let this grow. And meanwhile, this summer, if you have kids and you live in in the area of Strathcona Park, can't play baseball, can't play in the park, they can't go down there and walk their dogs, they can't do anything in their neighborhood. This is the largest park in a big area of our city that now is unusable 
by the majority of people who live in the neighborhood. That is unacceptable, and it's a, it's a, a responsibility that Park Board is leaving behind to deal with issues that aren't within the scope of their jobs. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, and the phone lines are lighting up on the topic of Strathcona Park, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell phone if you want to get in on the conversation. I'm chatting with my good friend, former Vancouver City Councillor, President and CEO of Curve Communications, George Affleck, is with us on the line. And George, very frustrated and, and passionate on this subject matter. You and I do a podcast, Unspun Podcast, and I think, what are we, 84... Uh, episodes in 84 weeks in and you have literally mentioned Oppenheimer or Strathcona Park in every episode because it is just a it's a systemic problem yeah and we've dealt with it in the previous councils that I was on uh, through uh, council and through park board Uh, we sought injunctions and we moved the the people along uh, through a very systematic approach uh, and dealt with it um, and, uh, and we solved the problem on several occasions. And, and it seems that this new council and this park board are unwilling to make uh, what's, what do what's necessary, which I think uh, it's neglecting the majority of people in the city and what they, what they believe uh, the role of uh, park board and the role of city council is. And I think that is unfortunate. And I think people will remember this, if it, especially if this continues. It's just going to bounce around in parks as we head towards an election in 2022. Do you think withholding property taxes will have any impact if Strathcona residents do that? It's certainly symbolic. I mean, this is a neighborhood that you would consider to be uh, somewhat perhaps left of center in political spectrum's point of view, uh, who are, as we heard from uh, from Kate, that, you know, open to trying to be thoughtful in this, this challenge that we are facing with regards to housing. But then you mm-hmm. also hear that they're frustrated. They're going, what the heck? This is out of control. Um, you know, we haven't heard from the gardeners in a while who have a massive uh, community garden along there. At first, they were very happy and okay with it. I'm not sure. I walked by there yesterday, actually. I went down for a walk, walked from Railtown over Strathcona and past the park and saw the 300 or so tents, 400 people down there. Uh, you know, it's a big park, uh, so it's not as obnoxious in some ways as Oppenheimer, uh, but it's all, they're all embedded inside sort of the gardening area. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a, and there's about, 50 campers as well. Uh, some of them are quite nice, parked along the road. So these aren't just homeless people. There are people that are making this uh, decision to, hey, well, free, free place to stay, a nice big tent. Some of the tents are quite nice, uh, and some of those trailers are quite nice, uh, and there's no uh, desire by the city or the park board to deal with this. All right. Phone lines are open, 604-280-9898, star 9898. Let's talk this through. We start with James in Surrey. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for taking my call. I, I I don't I don't have any any feelings of sympathy for these people because they're taking advantage of a of a, a situation right now where they're getting ridiculous in their demands and they're forcing people that do pay taxes and do want a safe place for their children to walk around and play as hostage to get what they want. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the park board is elected. Get a petition going. Get them all fired. They have no moral authority on this. They should not be making these kinds of decisions. And that's my stance on it. Get a petition going. Get them all fired. Okay, thanks, James. I appreciate your uh, perspective there. George, how does the park board get fired? (laughs) Well, any municipal government, including the park board, works at the pleasure of the province. Uh, We've seen the school board get fired in, in Vancouver a few years ago. Uh, certainly if there was an uh, argument by the province that they were not being responsible, 
the province could move in and do that, but I can't see them doing that. The, the, the provincial government, the NDP, are, are, are certainly aligned with the issue that the park board is, is speaking about. Uh, it's, of course, not the role of the park board to be speaking on that issue. So it would be very difficult for the NDP government uh, to uh, push out a, a government that is speaking in, in, in the kinds of language that they also support, which is dealing with housing and, and homelessness. And so it would be a tough one to do politically, uh, but it certainly is within their authority. But I don't see that happening. Right. Okay, let's go to the phones again. Roger in Vancouver. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jody. Hi, George. Um, hey. you know, inevitably, there's no, there's no solution to this problem. I think, you know, it, as long as you're building social housing, you can build it forever and more and more will come. My other question is, George, you can answer this. Why do we have a park sport? I think we're the only jurisdiction in North America that has a park sport. Yeah, we're the only elected park board in Canada. Uh, it's a very unusual historical circumstance. Uh, uh, there are many, uh, it's very passionate on both sides of the argument. Uh, and I get heated debates with John Cooper about this. He's a very proud uh, park board commissioner, great history and his family. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, but when, they, when you start seeing this kind of political, politicized behavior by a park board that are championing an issue that is not necessary within the scope of their mandate and their job, uh, and neglecting the basic principles of what they were elected to do, you have to ask yourself, what is the point of this organization? And I have said that it would be potential campaign slogan for somebody to say, dismantle the park board. That's the only campaign we're running on for park board. And as soon as they get voted in, they say the first motion they put forward is dismantle the park board, ask the province to, to change the Vancouver Charter and take away the, vote, the elected park board. That is certainly something that they could do, but it has to come from the park board and they have to ask the province to do that. So that's a potential uh, campaign slogan that you could see in 2022. I think there's certainly a lot of interest in that. All right, let's go to Nick in Vancouver. You're up. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call, Jody. Um, you know, no I'm looking at this situation, and um, what I see is it's a very organized group. They, they all go in there. They pitch up their tents. They know exactly what they're doing. I mean, why can't these, these guys can find jobs? I mean, there's no reason why they can't find a job. This mental illness thing, if they're so organized, um, look how they've, they've, what they've done to Oppenheimer Park and now Strathcona. And not only that, they... They demand things. They come out there and they demand things. And our governments, all they do is they find them more housing and not just housing out in the suburbs. They give them the most expensive land. I mean, how much longer can the taxpayers keep this up? It's, it's ridiculous. I think all of the city of Vancouver should hold their taxes off until this is settled. I can hear the frustration in your voice, Nick. What do you say to that, George? Well, you know, there's this argument called the broken windows uh, concept, right, where you, if you don't take care of something on the street, it slowly gets worse and worse. In this case, you have, this, historically, what would happen if a tent uh, popped up in a, in a park or anywhere in the city, uh, there was an immediate action by staff, whether it be park board staff or city staff, within the engineering department, usually for the city, uh, but also within the park board. That, that mentality, that approach uh, ended uh, some time ago. Uh, now there's this acceptance that, and in fact, policy uh, within the park board, that tents are now permitted. Um, so it's very difficult to, uh, to deal with this issue if you're permissive of, of behavior like this. Uh, but the issue is complex. As he mentioned, this is not just about jobs. It's just about, this is about housing, this is about mental health, this is about crime, this is about... So you have to uh, go at this issue on multiple areas. But 
the roles, going back to the roles and responsibilities of the park board, and this is in the park board site, and the city actually is no better at this job than, than the park board is right now. If you go anywhere along Hastings or Granville, you'll see Kent everywhere. Uh, yeah. the, the passive nature of the park board right now and their willingness to say housing is now within our scope uh, is a recipe for disaster in our parks across the city. And you don't have, I, I live in Yelltown, there's two tents right now. Uh, on at the park and right by my house and by my, my condo and and you know that's the park board accepts it that's the new way we live we and and they let them grow to the size like they're seeing and then it doesn't stop until somebody gets hurt or dies and that yeah. is not responsible governance that. that's no. not irresponsible. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, and it's time to cast our gaze south of the border. And for that, we connect with our good friend and colleague, producer and correspondent with Global National at the Washington, D.C. Bureau. Reggie Cicchini is on the line. Hi, Reggie. Good afternoon. I've been trying to figure out where we should begin. And I think that for those who sort of unplugged from the news cycle uh, over the long weekend here in B.C., we need to catch them up on this interview that... President Donald Trump did with Axios. And I've got a clip. It's a bit of a meaty clip, but but stay with me on this because uh, it, it's just unbelievable to hear Donald Trump try and explain himself around what is a very adept and focused interviewer. Have a listen. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death, yeah. started to go up again. One. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world. than what is that? Europe. In Take what? In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't. You can't do that. You have Why to go. Can't I do that? You have to go by. You have to go by where, look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases. The cases Why are not there. as a proportion of population? When somebody, what it says is when you have somebody that yeah. has, it, where there's a case, oh, okay. the people that live sure. from oh. those cases. It's surely a relevant statistic to say if the U.S. has X population and X percentage of death of that population no, versus South Korea. No, you have Korea. to go by the cases. Well, look at South Korea, if, for example. 51 million population, 300 deaths. It's like, it's you, crazy. You don't know that. I do. It's you on, don't know it's, that. Don't, you think they're faking their statistics? Uh, South Korea? I, I, I won't get into country? that because I have a very good relationship yeah. with the country. But you don't know that. That felt like an hour. It was one minute and 21 uncomfortable seconds. <laughs> Reggie, this interview, I, did, I, I struggled to choose which clip to air. It's just, it's unbelievable to watch it in its entirety. Your thoughts on what we witnessed on this Axios interview? Yeah, I mean, look, this interview is is incredible uh, for the way that Jonathan Swan from Axios is able to kind of just push back on the president while putting the president in his place, uh, while not allowing or at least giving the president an, an avenue to kind of dig himself into a deeper hole. Uh, it's 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 an incredible thirty-ish minute interview to watch, and I suggest everybody pay attention to it. But the president's uh, inability to kind of grasp the actual situation when it comes to the coronavirus outbreak in the country uh, it is remarkable in that, especially when you see him act kind of like the eight-year-old who's trying to change the rules. And he's like, well, no, you can't do that, even though health experts and most uh, uh, most uh, um, reputable organizations are using population as a way to look at and determine the percentage when it comes to death. This is just a president who wants to ensure that the picture looks rosy 
So you pick and choose and cherry pick the information. It's really wild to watch him just be so angered at somebody calling him on his narrative in real time with such calm because he gets he gets um, bombastic and argumentative with the White, Co- uh, the White House press corps. And yet, he, who is Jonathan Swan? How is he so uh, it, so firm and cool in each reaction? He gets little fact checks in between breaths by Trump there. Yeah, it, it, it's remarkable to be able to watch. I mean, look, Jonathan Swan is a great interviewer to begin with, and he's been with Axios for a long time, and he, he understands the ins and outs of Washington, but he's been covering President Trump now for five years. And to be able to get those little jabs in under his breath where he knows the president might be able to hear him, but he really is trying to put it on the record that this is what he's trying to correct the president with is a, a, a far uh, or at least a drastic difference from what we see with the White House press corps, who oftentimes won't push back on the president because they're afraid of losing uh, the access into the White House, uh, which is why there are some criticisms that access journalism doesn't really give you the best picture. It just gives you the soundbite you're looking for. Something like what we saw with a 30 minute kind of uninhibited conversation with the president really gives you a deeper and a really close up picture as to what's going on inside the mind of the president. Well, we heard in Terry Shint's news uh, just at the bottom of the hour there, he played a clip within his news package of the president being asked specifically about John Lewis. I, I about fell off my seat when I watched that. Yeah, I mean, look, the president's ego really comes out when he's talking about John Lewis, because instead of remarking on on the the history and the historical movements that uh, John Lewis was a part of when it comes to civil rights in this country, in the United States, the president talked about how he didn't attend his rallies. He didn't attend, rather, his inauguration. He didn't attend his State of the Union, making it about uh, the president, not making it about the remarkable strides that the U.S. has made because of people like John Lewis. And he couldn't answer what the legacy is going to be. And it shows that the president simply doesn't have a grasp on the realities that are happening in this country right now that could very well make or break his presidency in November. You know, Reggie, uh, you did tweet out the entirety, uh, retweeted the entirety of that Axios interview, and it is uh, 30 minutes that everybody should take the time to uh, watch and and consume, like give it your focus so you can really hear those those under the breath, almost on the record uh, fact checks. There there are Daniel Dale of CNN, formerly of the Toronto Star, who does the fact checks for CNN, like almost the real time fact check, has a thread on Twitter right now that just debunks like 99 percent of what is what Trump tries to sell off as fact in that interview. So there's a lot to to uncover there. But I want to move to I can't even believe it's the second story with you and I today, Reggie, the COVID-19 numbers uh, in the United States uh, approaching that 5 million mark for confirmed cases. Uh, But there is a little bit of good news, I guess, if you're looking at the overall curve, only 41,963 new cases in the last 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, look, that is some better news. It does show that there is a mild plateau after days and days of cases that were on the uh, plus side of 60,000 and oftentimes uh, encroaching on and surpassing 70,000. Dropping into the 40s is something to uh, be cautiously optimistic about. The issue here is that the U.S. is approaching 5 million cases of coronavirus, and the time it took to get from 4 to 5 million is much lower than what it was to get from 3 to 4 million, which is obviously lower than what it was to get uh, from 2 
two to three million. So it shows that there is a far and wide spread of this virus. And it is not because the U.S. is doing more testing. That is not the reason more cases are popping up. It is because the virus is starting to spread like wildfire in areas that were once doing okay at the onset of this outbreak. We heard that from the health experts over the weekend. Uh, and mm-hmm. for the president to be saying that things are okay right now uh, is short-sighted or is, again, cherry-picking information. And as you were saying, what we heard over the weekend from the scientists was that we've gone into a new phase here in the United States because it is everywhere. It's community. It's it's the wildfire has now reached uh, urban and suburban. It, you, you're safe nowhere now. The virus is everywhere. And those were things that are terrifying for um, anybody, any citizen to hear and then have the president attack the scientist. Yeah, and I mean, look, it's problematic now that it's heading into more rural areas of the United States because we already know that rural parts of this country oftentimes uh, are less affluent than other parts uh, of the uh, kind of urban centers across the U.S., and that can impact hospital care. It, it can impact uh, the kind of care that an individual may be able to access if they can access hospital care. So it means that there could potentially be uh, further death uh, from people who simply aren't able to get themselves to a hospital in the first place. This is why we heard uh, the World Health Organization say there is no silver bullet. There may be kind of uh, just a period of having to deal with this uh, and try to do the best that we can, not like the president saying the death toll is what it is, but trying to mitigate that and, and ensure that it doesn't get any higher than what it is. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week and continuing our chat with the one and only Reggie Cicchini, producer correspondent for Global National based in our Washington, D.C. bureau. And Reggie, you know what? We'll get back to uh, COVID-19, the U.S., etc. But I got to hit on the political piece with you because everybody's waiting with bated breath to hear who Joe Biden will pick as his VP. And did he not say that he was going to make that announcement in, quote unquote, the first week or early August? Do we have Reggie? Sorry. Perhaps if I turn the there mic you on. Are. Uh, semantics there. <laughs> may be playing uh, uh, part of the role here because the, pre- uh, the vice president said that he would be making a choice in the beginning of August, but not necessarily an announcement. So there is an opportunity that somebody could be chosen within the next few days and then potentially announced in the run up to the co- convention a couple of weeks from now. Right. The Democratic National Convention is, what, two weeks away in Milwaukee? It is uh, two weeks from now because uh, it, it is a week before the Republican National Convention. So there is an opportunity potentially that we could hear who this person is maybe by the end of this week, but also potentially next week, giving that person, uh, you know, the two weeks to try and drum up some support to get some advertising out there and to appear in public with the vice president or at least the presidential candidate, uh, Joe Biden, uh, before they actually take the stage at this what will sort of be a non-conventional convention. Yeah, that was my next question. It was like, what does even a convention look like in a time of COVID-19? Uh, well, they're going to be much different than what we've seen before. A lot of it will take place virtually. There will be far fewer people inside any of these uh, arenas. A lot of the kind of uh, negotiating and delegate casting back and forth will be done in a virtual setting. A lot of the media also not even getting accredited to be able to be in uh, the vicinity of the arena. So this is something that we haven't seen before, but could potentially be the way that things work going forward. It is fascinating. Okay, do we have any... Um, sort of intel or are we looking into our crystal ball as to who Biden's VP pick or to, or front runners might even be? You know, we're seeing yeah, so- the many names sort of roll through the headlines and, and the talk show circuit. But what do you think? 
Yeah, look, there, there are a couple of uh, uh, bigger names out there that have been circulating for the last couple of weeks. Kamala Harris sort of yeah. sits at the top of that list, according to a number of the media outlets. Also, someone like Elizabeth Warren or Senator Tammy Duckworth, uh, 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 Representative Karen Bass. These are names and, and former uh, 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 Susan Rice from the Barack Obama yeah. administration that could potentially cause problems for Joe Biden for Republicans and could really drum up a whole series of issues if he goes down that route. But these are the names that really have been circulating for the last week or uh, for the last couple of months or so it'll be interesting to hear i'm sure we'll, we're all sort of waiting with bated breath just to know even when people say why don't you just worry about the politics in canada north of the border because it affects all of us globally who is at the helm of the united states so i'm just going to answer that before i get the influx of people going calm down about being so curious but i am curious like so many about what's happening in the u.s and i do like to watch the polling numbers and then whenever you and i connect you sort of unpack them in a way that is is uh, a little bit more discerning as to what we're seeing. I had floated you one percentage polling percentage that I saw earlier, and you gave me a really solid yeah, but. So can you share that with our listener? Well, yeah. So when we're talking about the coronavirus polling, uh, there are 58% of Americans who responded to an NBC uh, poll that say that they don't trust what the president has to say. The issue here is that there are 32% of republic, uh, 32% of that poll said that they do trust what the president has to say. But when you break that down, uh, it goes to show that 70% of Republicans trust the president when he's talking about uh, situations and and issues and treatments when it comes to the coronavirus. And broken down further, only 32% of Republicans trust both the Centers for Disease Control and Dr. Anthony Fauci, which goes to show that this pandemic has been overly politicized in this country, given the fact that you have uh, a significant majority of one party not believing the medical experts. And and significant numbers, like not just sort of a, a, a small swath, but just like this massive. And when we're getting into the 30s of percentages of people not believing science, I mean, the long term impacts of that are, are hard to imagine. I want to talk about just briefly here, if we could, uh, the, the debate about back to school. I mean, many people nervous here in, in BC, certainly uh, the discussions around back to school. We're going to have a, a conversation with Richard Zussman, uh, as it was just announced uh, hours ago, that Alberta is making masks mandatory for uh, kids, older kids and high schoolers uh, in school, something that Dr. Bonnie Henry, our provincial health officer, has said that's not happening. There's no mandatory mandate, um, really, uh, on masks and numerous things and lockdowns here in B.C. However, the debate south of the border on back to school at all with the numbers as high as they are. What are you hearing on that, Reggie? Well, look, there are some schools that are already in. There are districts in Arizona and districts in Tennessee that go back at the end of July. Uh, they're doing so on a modified basis, but they did send kids back into school. The problem is, is that m the majority of schools in the U.S. kind of head back to school the second and third week of August. And some of the biggest districts in some of the Midwestern states are now having to think of a new plan all of a sudden. Areas like Indiana shifting to online because students in the school are testing positive. Students in a Mississippi school district are now being forced to quarantine, which is going to change how they do their classes because students are testing positive for the virus and there's a Georgia school district where the staff are being barred from entry because some of the staff members are starting to test positive. This is a growing problem across the country where kids are now showing to be more uh, susceptible to uh, getting this virus and being able to transmit it, which is what we've been hearing from health experts, which is why there is kind of uh, still uncertainty as to how schools are going to go forward. The president has threatened to cut off funding, whatever that means, uh, if they don't open. And again, this is a very partisan and political issue, which really should be left up to the school districts and the parents when it comes to how they think the safety of their kids should be uh, prioritized.
Amen to that. Thank you for so much of your time on a very busy day back to work, Reggie Cicchini. As always, we appreciate you. Thank you. Masks can play an important role in limiting the spread of COVID-19 in our schools. As a result, mask use for students in grades 4 to 12, as well as all school staff, will be mandatory when school returns for the 2020-21 school year. Staff will be required to wear masks in all settings where physical distancing cannot be maintained and students will be required to wear them in all shared and common areas such as hallways and on school buses. All right, so that's Alberta Education Minister Adriana LaGrange uh, talking about mandatory masks in schools in Alberta when back to school happens this fall. So we're going to open up the phone lines on this in the next segment, 604-280-9898 and star 9898 on your cell. Uh, If you think that masks should be mandatory in BC schools, Dr. Bonnie Henry has said that's not happening. There will be no mandatory masks. But also Dr. Henry has been wearing her mask. She recommends that we all wear face coverings or masks that keep our droplets to ourselves whenever physical distancing is not an option. So we are trying to keep that two meter distance. And when that is not possible, we should all be doing the most respectful thing for our fellow community member, for our fellow fellow citizen is wearing a mask. The more masks being worn on, say, public transit, the better it is for everyone. But back to school, what does that look like? Uh, we're going to connect now with Richard Zussman, our global online legislative reporter. We're just waiting for Richard to uh, to tie in and connect. But some of the facts that we know from Alberta, at first blush, it's it was a little bit of a, a shock. You're like, okay, kids four, grades 4 to 12 will all have to wear masks in school. What will that look like? And then the caveats started to come in. So that will be on buses. That will be in all common areas and in hallways, but there will not be mandatory masks in class. There will be mandatory masks for all teachers and all staff and kids in grades 4 to 12 in Alberta. And that's the mindset of uh, should that perhaps be something that is mandated coast to coast? As I mentioned off the top, mandatory is not a word that our BC Provincial Health Officer likes to use in any way, shape, or form, really. She's asking for buy-in. She's asking for us to all be mindful and wear our masks where physical distancing is not possible. Certainly, you're not sending your child to school if they're symptomatic in any way. Kids being of lower risk, these are the things. Our our community numbers, our our COVID-19 numbers, which, by the way, the four-day total, the the four-day press briefing is happening today at 3 o'clock. So in less than an hour from now, and the Linda Steele show will take you live to Dr. Bonnie Henry and BC Health Minister Adrian Dix making the announcement of what the numbers are over the last four days. But the other piece of this puzzle is what is happening in Alberta. And as we're staring down uh, back to school here in BC, your thoughts on masks in school, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. And we have connected now with Richard Zussman, our global online legislative reporter on this topic. Uh, Thanks for doing this, Richard. I know it's a busy day. Yeah, sorry it took a while to get a hold of me. I'm happy to do it, Jody, as always. 
Oh, good to have you here. Now, I was saying, I'm not sure if you were able to hear me, but I was saying before, like at first headline, when I first saw your tweet move, uh, that was saying that Alberta had made the announcement that the education minister had announced that masks would be mandatory for uh, grades four to 12. And then I followed along as you added the caveats of what that means. So can you lay out what we have learned from today's announcement in Alberta? Yeah, so it will be mandatory for kids grade 4 to 12 in Alberta schools to wear a mask when they are in common areas. So when they're in the hallways or when they're in shared space and in spaces where it's impossible to keep distance. But they will not be required to wear masks in the classroom or on the schoolyard. Mask use for kindergarten to grade 3 will continue to be optional. And this is, in many regards relatively similar to what Dr. Bonnie Henry has been calling for. But Dr. Henry has never used the word mandatory. And no doubt she will be asked about this at three o'clock during the briefing today around what Alberta is doing. And what Dr. Henry said last week during the province's uh, announcement of the back to school plan is that when physical distance in common areas is not possible, older students in high school should be wearing masks. The question is, will Dr. Henry go further in the language or will that be expanded to include more students as Alberta now has? Interesting, Richard, that throughout this entire pandemic, I cannot think of a time that Dr. Henry has used the word mandatory other than to say it is mandatory yeah. that you close your pub on St. Patrick's Day. Right, like, I can't are, think of a time. Right. There have been restrictions that have been in place that, you know, have made the rules clear, yes. the broader question has been around enforcement and, and what has been done in order to enforce those measures. But you make a very good point, is that the um, style of Dr. Henry is to provide the information so that people can make the best decisions possible in order to keep themselves and others safe. You know, we've seen this evolution in the conversation around masks when it comes uh, to transit and we are slowly evolving to translate working on language to make masks mandatory, quote unquote, on board. But throughout the last few months, Dr. Henry has been clear when you're on transit, you should be wearing a mask. It is yeah. indoors, it's enclosed, and it is very challenging uh, to keep distance uh, in most circumstances on board. So in those situations, you should be wearing a mask. Where Dr. Henry falls short on schools is the idea that it could be challenging for kids uh, in order to wear them, especially in a classroom environment, which I don't think anyone's recommending. Which is the key. And that's where I was going to take you there, because I've been getting texts and emails. And if people want to chime in, Jody at CKNW.com, if you've got concerns or thoughts on whether masks should be mandatory in BC schools, you can call in our next segment, open phone 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Uh, Not in Alberta, not anywhere has anybody laid down the mandate of kids, social and or physical distance seated with proper hygiene and healthy in classrooms wearing masks. That is not the reality that we're staring down here. And and kids are the, the lowest at risk when it comes to this virus. And what Dr. Henry, if I'm hearing correctly, has been saying is that the negative unintended consequence of keeping our kids home from in-class uh, education could have longer term, more dire consequences than uh, what a test positive for most kids with COVID-19 would have. 
Yes, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> and yeah. there has been a lot of concern around the return to school plan. And, and one of the parts that has parents concerned is around the fact that kids will not be physical distancing in the classroom. In most BC classrooms, it is impossible to have a full classroom while also ensuring that every kid is six feet away from each other. So instead, what the province is opting for are these pods, these cohorts that students will be put in. So it will minimize the spread of the virus. It will allow for better contact tracing uh, and in turn help the control the spread of the virus. To the other point you were making, Jody, and the one that Dr. Henry has been making all along is that the province believes the well-being of British Columbian kids, uh, for the best of their well-being, they need to be in school. And we're still grappling as a province with what it will look like for parents who decide not to send their kids to school and will there be options for virtual learning. That's something the province is still tackling. It's not right now, it's unclear in the original plan where those kids fit in. But I think as we evolve through this, changes will be made. The goal in all of this, as Dr. Henry has made clear a number of times, is to provide schooling for everyone so that people do not fall behind and the most vulnerable uh, don't continue to see the sort of instances of mental health struggles and other struggles we have seen due to the pandemic and the fact that we haven't had, you know, full-time schooling uh, since before March break. Right. And maybe and this is just something that I've I've heard through the grapevine uh, in, when in the conversations with teachers and the pushback from the BCTF and, and the school trustees and principals and parent advisory boards all sort of standing up and saying we trust Dr. Henry and sort of these, you know, the sort of first real pushback that our provincial health officer has received if, from inside our province is that there there literally must be a plan B for uh, education if our numbers do go up, if there is a second wave and everybody does get sent home. But perhaps in the the grapevine pieces, perhaps that it it isn't your kid having their teacher teach them in a virtual classroom, but a more sort of amalgamated BC curriculum that you can easily access and join in to get your basic learning while there are um, windows where in-class learning isn't an option. So there's two different things there. I think there is a plan B. And if we do have an increase in cases, we will quickly move there. And Dr. Henry has said that all along. There is flexibility here. Premier Horgan has said there's a plan B. But what about, Jody, those families that just are unsure about all of this? Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. even if cases are low and Dr. Henry is comfortable, many families will not be comfortable. So what is their plan B? And that, I think, is what is being grappled with right now, is that there's a mix of language from when you ask Dr. Henry or Minister Fleming around what happens for, for families who just don't feel comfortable, even though the suggestion is to return to school, they don't feel comfortable with it. Those families right now are left out in the cold a little bit, concerned around what is going to happen. If cases go up, I think everybody understands there will be more options, will be virtual, there will be other types of options. But one of the potential proposals is for those individuals in September who feel uncomfortable, because we know there'll be teachers who feel uncomfortable as well. There's a very strong push towards allowing those teachers to teach the students who do not want to return virtually. They may not be their actual teachers when we come to in-class learning, 
but it could be a way that schools on a school-to-school or district-to-district level can deal with those deep concerns that parents have. And we see this online petition now that started just a few days ago to keep return to school in BC on an optional or voluntary basis in September. When I looked at it yesterday, it had 1,000 signatures. It's now closing on 14,000. So obviously it's an issue that's hitting home with people. They don't know the solutions, but they do know that they feel uncomfortable. Interesting. Well, thank you for your time today, Richard. We will be tuned in in 40 40 minutes time uh, for the uh, press briefing from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dixon. We'll be watching on BC One and on Facebook for your reports. Thanks for this. I'll be there. Thanks, uh, Jody. Talk to you soon.